Well, again, welcome to Advent. Uh, this is one of my favorite times of the year as we talk about uh, the coming of Christ, uh, the Word made flesh. I want to do a series starting today called the Songs of Christmas. One of the most prolific hymn writers of the last 2,000 years was a man by the name of Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was a genius. He, um, listen to this, by the, by the age of four, he had learned Latin. Um, by the age of nine, Greek. At 11, he had learned French. And at the age of 13, Hebrew. His poetic reworking of the Psalms is classic. It's beautiful. Uh, unfortunately, poor Isaac was not a looker. Um, he, he had one chance at love uh, during his lifetime, and it was from a young lady named Elizabeth Singer who actually fell in love with Isaac Watts by reading his poetry. Uh, it, was like, it was like internet dating without, the, uh, without any pictures. Uh, she, they started writing letters to each other, and she became so enamored with both his letter writing and his poetry that she actually proposed to him. When they finally met, this is a brutal story. When they finally met, she retracted her offer. She later wrote, she later wrote that Isaac Watts was only five feet tall with a shallow face, hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and death-like color. She went on to say, I admired the jewel, but not the casket that contained it. It's oh, brutal, isn't it? It didn't slow Isaac Watts down too much. He wrote 715 hymns that we know about. Uh, and in 1719, he published what was his poetic reworking of Psalm 98 that would go on to become probably the most, I think, one of the most well-loved Christmas hymns of all time, Joy to the World, the Lord has Come. Let earth receive her king. I love the music of Christmas. Although I have to admit that I refuse to listen to Christmas music until after the first Sunday of Advent, which is today. So now I can listen to some Christmas songs. Some of the songs that we sing at Christmas are very old. This morning we sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel which is based on a text written in the ninth century, though the arrangement we did this morning had nothing ninth century uh, about it. It was a contemporary setting, but the text is from the ninth century. Think about that. We're singing a hymn, Veni, Veni, Emmanuel, which was in Latin. It's 1,300 years old. There are four songs, and I'm calling them songs because traditionally that's what the church has called them, in Luke 1 and 2 that are even older than that song. They are songs that surround the birth of Christ. They are songs um, that are in some sense the first Christmas carols. They became known traditionally by their first word in Latin. In other words, we... New Testament was written in Greek, translated into Latin. When did Jerome do that? Third century, fourth century? Uh, translated it into Latin. 
And the, the hymns, the songs from Luke 1 and 2, are you all with me still? Luke 1 and 2, they become known by the first word in Latin of each of the songs. So we have four songs in Luke 1 and 2. We have the Song of Mary, uh, which is known as the Magnificat, My Soul Magnifies the Lord, Magnificat. We have the Song of Zechariah, which is uh, the Benedictus. We have the Song of the Angels, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, and the Song of Simeon, the Nunc Dimittis. Uh, and so what we're going to do over the next four Sundays is we're going to look at each of these songs and what they tell us about Advent. I, I should have preached this series 20 years ago because I love music, I love songs, but I've never actually gone through all four songs, though I've looked at them at different periods and different times in the life of our church. So I hope you love this series. I'm really uh, excited about it. And again, they're not called songs. It never says like the angels sang. Uh, if you look in the book of Luke, it says the angels said. But they're poetic in their nature. They're hymn-like. They're song-like. And so over the years, as early as the 3rd and 4th century, you see these texts put to, put to music. So today we're going to talk, first of all, about the Song of Zechariah. And you may say, wait a minute, but the Song of Mary comes first. Well, sort of. Zechariah begins the book of Luke. After the introduction, the first four or five verses, we see the story of Zechariah and pick up with it, and then later he will come back to his song, but I want to do his song first. I want to start with Zechariah. Zechariah was a, a, a priest in the nation of Israel. He, he lived in the city of Jerusalem. He was a priest. He was the son of a priest. That's the only way you could become a priest back then was you had to be born into it. So he's from the line of Aaron. His wife, Elizabeth, is also the child, the daughter of a priest. Uh, it's a perfect marriage. Uh, really, when you think about it, you've got uh, a preacher's son and a preacher's daughter coming together in marriage. <laughs> Some people say that's nothing but trouble. Uh, but I can't testify to that because I am a preacher's son. Um, but in any case, they are married, and I, I'm sure on their wedding day, there was this celebration that occurred, which occurred at all really Jewish weddings of the time, and there was this theological thought, it kind of went together, the, that God blessed those who were holy, that God's blessings, His provisions, and one of the provisions of blessing of the Lord was children. Uh, and not only that, but at this period of time, there was this thought that uh, Jewish couples would have the most children they could possibly have because one of their children, one of their sons, might be the promised Messiah. So you have Elizabeth and Zechariah coming together in marriage, and really, they're like the perfect they're the poster children for people who might have the Messiah, a priest and the daughter of a priest coming together. And, and there are blessings that were spoken in the, the wedding ceremony of that day that said things like, may God be pleased to give you many children and may he send Messiah through you to set his people free. It was the dream of all newlyweds in Israel. To have a lot of children. So think of this. Think of Zechariah and Elizabeth not 
having children. It says that uh, Elizabeth was barren, meaning that she wasn't able to conceive. She wasn't able to have children. And what was seen as both a blessing to the nation and a sign of the blessing of God, you're not able to receive. And for all of us who've gone through disappointment, you have this, this time of disappointment that turns into sorrow and Sorrow turns into to despair. Despair eventually turns into resignation where you just feel like you're going through life resigned to an outcome that you never, you never saw coming. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they stayed faithful to God. And I'm sure through so many unanswered prayers and through so many disappointments, they stayed faithful. One day, Zechariah's name is called as a priest to have this honor to go minister in the temple. Now, by this time in his life, Zechariah, he's a card-carrying member of the AARP. I mean, he's old. Uh, we don't know exactly how old. It doesn't say in the scripture the way it's worded, he was, he was at least 60. Tradition holds that he was probably in his 80s and Elizabeth in her 70s by this point. He's old. He's old. But he gets the privilege of ministering in the temple. Now, think about this. Uh, just roughly painting the picture of some numbers. It, uh, Jerusalem at this time probably had a population. Now, it's a lot of debate about how big Jerusalem was when Jesus was born. But most scholars will say somewhere around 200 to 250,000. Though some numbers go up to 600,000, some numbers go down to 80. We'll use 200,000 as a rough number of the, the size of Jerusalem when Jesus was born. Of the 200,000, 20,000 were priests. 20,000 were priests. It's like the Bible Belt. I mean, except the Bible city. I mean, it's got, it's just inundated with preachers uh, and priests. One out of every 10, if my math is right, is, is a priest or a preacher. And so uh, every day, at different times, they would have the, the, the temple worship. And if your name was drawn to lead, and they drew names, if your name was drawn for temple duty, especially particular aspects of the temple, it was quite an honor. And most likely, you, you, you'd only be drawn to do specific things once in your life. Zechariah's name comes out that he is going to lead the, 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 the ceremony at the altar of incense. Now, if you remember, we've done some tabernacle temple studies in here in the past, but uh, you've got the Holy of Holies, which is uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was located, which symbolized the presence of God. In the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go, and then only once a year. Outside of the Holy of Holies, right before you entered, going behind the veil, the, the temple veil, outside of that Holy of Holies was the altar of incense. And on the altar of incense, they would burn coal, and they put some of the blood of the sacrifice, and then they put incense on the hot coal, which would go up as a sign of the prayers of the people. So you get the symbolism, I think. You've got the prayers of the people going up 
before God right outside the holy place where his presence is. So the highest honor that a normal priest could have was to go and lead the prayer time at the altar of incense, to put the incense on the altar. Now, during the time of the what's called the second temple, I actually learned this while I was out of town, it seems like there were three temples, but they always called the Herod uh, Herod's temple the second temple. Um, <clears throat> anyway, there, there were these steps that went up to the altar of incense. So all the priests would gather around and they would start praying and do their stuff. And then they would go back down to join the people in the courtyard who would be laying prostrate uh, uh, before the, the um, altar. And then the priest, the one, put the altar, the incense on the altar that would go up as a sign of the prayers of the people. Are you with me so far? I mean, it was a high honor. This is a big, big deal. Zechariah's name comes up. He goes before the altar. Uh, all the other priests have withdrawn. He uh, uh, puts the incense on the altar. The next thing you know, Gabriel, the angel, Gabriel, shows up and says to Zechariah this. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. This has got to be unbelievable, right? I mean, incredible. You've been praying since you got married that you'd have a child. Now your one day of worship, the one day you get to go in the temple and offer the incense and put it on the altar, the next thing you know, there's an angel staying there and said, hey, just as this incense is going up as prayers, God has heard your prayer, Zechariah, and it's going to be answered. It's going to be answered. You're going to have a son. His name is going to be John. He's going to be a great guy. I mean, he's telling him this great, this just incredible, incredible news. Now, a couple of things here. Ah, just one or two. I'll try and throw them out. Do you think it was just luck that Zechariah's name got drawn that day? Oh, look. What, how lucky I am. Zechariah and Elizabeth are, are holy, God-fearing, devoted people. God chose them. God chose him. God chose him for this very moment to lead this prayer. God directs the course of our lives. Sometimes we don't even see it. We think, oh, look at, look at where I am. How lucky of me. Well, we believe in a sovereign God who's directing the steps of our lives. He goes on, the angel does, Gabriel says, he is never going to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. There's so many things about this prophecy that are just incredible. Just, he's giving him a Nazarite vow, basically, saying, hey, follow this certain course. God has a plan for his life. You're to direct his path. And even from birth, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
This passage is full of a prophetic context that Zechariah would recognize. He recognizes what is being said about John is he is the promised one, the one who will come to prepare a way for the Messiah. You may not be, John's not going to, you're not going to be the father of the Messiah, but you're going to be the father of the one who prepares the way. You would think Zechariah would be overwhelmed. And honestly, he is. But overwhelmed in the sense of, I don't think so. Senior citizens don't have babies. Now, he's obviously forgotten Father Abraham. He's, also, he's obviously forgotten how God works miracles when God wants to work miracles. You know, people have questioned, well, maybe Zachariah's just kind of like, he's just, you know, a normal skeptic a little bit, like Mary was. Mary questions the angel and says, how is this to be? I'm a, I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. And, but the angel of the Lord didn't strike her down. How come this? Because what's going to happen to Zechariah, as you know the story, he says, how's this to be? And I, I want a sign that this is true, basically. And the angel says, okay, I'll give you a sign. You're not going to talk again until the baby's born. Here's your sign. You're not going to say anything else until the baby is, is, is birthed. There's a difference between saying, God, show me the way. How is this going to happen like Mary and Zechariah saying, I don't think so. The next time Zechariah speaks, here's a remarkable fact, thing to think about. Zechariah goes home and his wife conceives. Now, you can think about the dynamics here. In other words, he goes home after the prophetic word, has intimate relations with his 70-year-old wife, and she conceives. In other words, his faith now, there, it, it, it's present. He could have not been with Elizabeth, but he, he went home and he fulfills his husbandly duties, and she conceives. Nine months later, everybody's gathered around because they want to see the miracle of this 70-year-old, or whatever she is at this time, having a baby. Some things are happening in between. We'll tell you about those in a minute, but, I mean, in the weeks ahead. But they're, everybody's saying, oh, surely they're going to name this baby Zachariah. I mean, there's a miracle baby. Surely they're going to name the baby Zachariah, and they come together, and Elizabeth says, nope, we're going to call the baby John. Now, obviously... Zachariah has gone down home and written, not spoken because he can't say anything, written down for Elizabeth, we are calling this baby John. You know, he said, I don't care, here's what happened to me. I don't, you know, he's had nine months to fill in the gaps for her, to tell her about the angelic visitation and all that's happened. We're going to call this baby John. And so everybody's like, no, 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 you're not going to call this baby John. Nobody in your family's named John. Nobody, and then they say, well, let's ask Zechariah. And he writes down, we're going to, his name will be called John. And it's at that moment he's able to speak again. And what does he do? 
with really what we see as the first words out of his mouth, he praises God. He praises God in what is known as the Benedictus, this first song, this song of Zechariah, which is found in Luke 1, verses 68 and following. He says, praise be to the God, excuse me, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Excuse me, I got ahead of myself. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember, to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. It's a song that speaks of faith and salvation. It's a song that rises out of the faith of Zechariah. It is a song, that, by the way, that is largely plagiarized. In other words, his song, some of you go, what? His song is mainly quotes from the Old Testament. It's quotes from the Psalms and from the prophets and from Samuel and Abraham and Moses and David. It's, it's, it's a speaking back to God, by the way, which is a great way to pray his word. A great way to pray is to pray back to God his word. If you ever wonder, what should I pray? A great place to start is the Bible. Pray back to him, agreeing with his word. But let's look at this song. I just want to take it apart because... As we start this time of Advent, this song, the longest of the four songs, really, tells us of what God is doing on this earth and in the coming of Jesus Christ. So first, he says, Christ's coming provides salvation. Christ's coming provides salvation. And verses, let's look at the first verses here. He talks about salvation and how God's saving purpose is seen in four different ways, just within these verses. The first is through redemption. He has come and has redeemed his people. To redeem means to, to release back from bondage, bondage, to purchase back. In other words, if, if you need to get back something you want, it's like going to a pawn shop. I, I never go to a pawn shop, but I have friends who go uh, to pawn shops and get good deals and sell. But people pawn their stuff. In other words, they change, they give it for a little bit of money. To get it back, they got to give a lot of money. It costs more to get back than what it costs to put in, actually. Christ redeemed us. He has bought us back, which is, which is a, I, I could stay here all day. This gospel truth to me of redemption, it, it just strikes at the heart. In other words, God already made us. He already created us. We are here because God created man in his image. But we sinned, and when we sinned, we became in bondage, so to speak, to the nature of sin and death and all. So God purchases us back. 
He buys us back. He creates us and he redeems us. It's why when we talk about allegiance to God, our lordship of him, I mean, what else is there? You wouldn't be here without God physically, and you wouldn't be here spiritually without his redemptive purpose in your life. Christ has come to save. He's come, he came to redeem, to buy us back. He came to save us. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, I, I've seen the horns, uh, you know, the shofar kind of horns. This is not that kind of horn. This is not like blowing the bugle kind of horn. This is like, you know, you, you mess with the bull, you get the horns kind of thing. Uh, that kind of horn, the horn of uh, deliverance that comes from, from God. He, he has provided salvation from our enemies, from the ones who hate us, to rescue us, it goes on in verse 74, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies. We have redemption. He came to redeem us. He came to, he came to justify us. In other words, he came, he came with the power to set us free. It's one thing for me to want to redeem you. It's another thing for me to even have the money to redeem you. But it's a whole different thing if I have the power to, to get you back. It's like the judge who declares you not guilty. He has the authority. He has the power. So we have the picture of redemption and the picture of justification being made right. And we have this, the, the, the picture of forgiveness to give his people the knowledge of salvation. How? Through the forgiveness of their sins. He's bought us back. This is the picture of atonement. By the way, I would encourage you, just side note, go read Romans 3. Go read Romans 3. And Paul paints this beautiful picture of this trilogy of, of what Christ has done. And he does it exactly like this. Christ has redeemed us. Christ has paid the price for our sins. He's justified us. And he talks about how he atones for our sins. The terms used are propitiation and expiation. They're talking about taking away our sins and the, the altar, uh, the, the, the top of the... Uh, Ark of the Covenant. Anyway, go read Romans 3 as a side note. Here's the idea. Christ's coming, he says, provides salvation. Here's the remarkable thing. I'm going to press through. Here, here's the remarkable, because I've got four more points, and you're like, oh, wow, he's got a lot to go. Um, Zechariah is preaching the gospel before the gospel ever happens. You know, in hindsight, we've got this stuff where we can say, yeah, this is what Jesus did. He came and died on the cross for our sins. He paid the price. That's how Paul's speaking. But Zechariah is speaking when his son John is born. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And he's proclaiming the gospel and what it's going to do. Christ's coming provides salvation because Christ's coming fulfills prophecy. Christ's coming fulfills the prophetic word. He, he goes on and talks about what the holy prophets spoke long ago. So we see here that God keeps his promises. He, he spoke through the prophets. He spoke to uh, show mercy to our fathers. And by that, he's not, saying, he's not saying that, from what I read about it, he's not saying he came to show mercy like he, came, he, came, he was sorry. He's showing mercy for the past things our fathers. No, he's saying 
God said this to our fathers in mercy. And Jesus coming fulfills that merciful position that God had to our fathers. And he came to do it to remember. His, he goes all the way back to Abraham. To say Christ's coming is fulfilling what the prophets have said, what God said to our fathers in his merciful state, and even the promise he gave to Abraham. That out of Abraham's seed would come the one, the deliverer. Christ's coming fulfills prophecy. You know the stuff about how, how hundreds of prof, prophetic words about the Messiah and Jesus fills everyone. And then he talks about how Christ's coming gives us purpose. Verses 74 and 75, he says, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And when he says us, I don't think he's talking about just he and Elizabeth and the little people around him or even the Jewish people. I think he's talking about all of us who will come to know Jesus Christ and that, that Christ's coming will give us purpose. I've said it here before and it's not original with me, but the two... The two greatest days in your entire life are the day you were born and the day you discover why. The day you were born and the day you discover why. When you discover your, your purpose. He's saying that Jesus, Jesus allows us in holiness and righteousness all our days. In other words, Christ saves us, which is good, right? You're going to go to heaven, not hell. Great. I think that's great news. It's good news. Unbelievable news. But he doesn't leave us just with this promise that when we die, we're going to heaven. He, he says, you are, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are holy. And most of us today would say, you know, I don't feel all that holy. God declares you holy, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done in you. And then he's allowing that holiness to work its way out through you to change you. This process of becoming what you really are, listen to me, this process of becoming what you really are holy is called sanctification. The process of being made holy. And he's saying Christ's coming, Christ's coming works its way out in you in holiness and righteousness all our days. You know what that enables you to do? It enables you to serve him without fear. Throughout the ages, people serve. But do you know, one of the greatest motivations to get people to serve is fear. I mean, dictators have used this all the time, haven't they? Serve me or you die. Serve me or I take your children. Serve me or I punish you. Serve me or this will happen. That's serving through fear. And many of us have this idea about God, even still, that we'll serve him, but we do it because if we don't, he's going to get us. Oh, my goodness, God's going to really come down on me if I don't serve him. You know, it's that old mentality of uh, if you don't tithe, he's going he's gonna to break your refrigerator. God's going to get his money one way or the other, right? 
I haven't even heard those sermons. If you don't, if you don't give your car, it's going to bust down before you get home. You know, your house will catch fire. You better give. I mean, it's just terrifying. And so people are, I don't give because I don't want my house to burn down. No, Christ's coming enables you to serve without fear. How do, why do we serve? We serve because he loves us and has redeemed us. We recognize the creation and the redemption and the love that he has for us. It's a great message. Even if that's all you get today, that you can serve him without fear because Christ came, this day will have been worth it. I mean, really, it, it just breaks freedom. Freedom is a wonderful thing in service before the Lord. I'm sick of legalism. I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of what it does to people. It just drives me crazy, makes me angry. And that's not healthy for me. And so I want us to walk in freedom to serve God without fear. To do it because we love him. It goes on, it says, and that Christ's coming will be prepared by John. We've, we're, we're looking at 12 verses. Of the 12 verses, only two of them actually speak about John. He's prophesying over his son, but he's not. He's prophesying about the coming of the Messiah. But he says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sin. He's saying, son, you're going to be a prophet. Not just any prophet. You're a prophet from the Most High. You're going to prepare the way for him. Who's the him? Jesus, the Messiah. You're going to prepare the way to give people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And this is exactly what John the Baptist really does. He was called a prophet. The people went out in droves to see him minister at the Jordan River. He, he preached repentance. Now you may be saying, well, John's message was not a forgiveness but a repentance. Well, that's where repentance is. Quit going this way. Ask God to forgive you and go this way. He preaches that message and he prepares the way for the Most High so that when Jesus comes to the Jordan to be baptized, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He proclaims the way. Just as a side note, John throughout his ministry, he had no problem with Jesus becoming greater and him becoming lesser. He even tells, hey, I must decrease, he's going to increase to his own followers when they're saying, hey, people, are, they're leaving you to go follow Jesus. Well, that's why I'm here. He recognizes that I'm, I'm here to prepare the way for him. Parents, I, I want to encourage you to think about this. You could bestow no greater gift to your children than to say that Jesus is the reason you live. Jesus is the reason. We live in an age which tries to so value children that we live in child-centered homes where we believe that we want to say to our children, you are the most valuable. You are the thing. You're special. You, you, you're this. And, and I'm not trying to say don't put self-worth in your children. But we've gone so far over the edge, in my view, that self-worth has become idolatrous. And 
What we want to teach our children is this message of John the Baptist, live for him. Live for him. You could have no greater purpose in your life than to give your life for the glory of God. The gifts he's placed within you, the talents, the abilities, the say you're a great athlete or you're a brilliant thinker, praise God, use it for his glory. Use it for his glory, not for, not for yours. John was focused on being second, not first. And in that way, he was able to open the gospel up to others. Final point. Christ's coming does bring blessings. Does bring blessings. Verses 78 and 79 says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. He, he, his blessings come to us. He provides light. We are a people, as John says, living in darkness. And God God has shown us Jesus. He's, he's brought us light. I like the way the King James actually translates this. The King James actually says, the day spring from on high. The dawn, the day spring from on high. Christ comes to give us a new day and a new start. Speaks of hope to the hurting. He, he's, another blessing is that he, he brings pardon. For those condemned to death. Here's the deal. We are all condemned to death. I mean, in sin, we're all condemned to death. Jesus coming, pardon. He, he provides pardon for us. Again, that's why it's called the good news, the gospel. I mean, people, you're not near as excited about this as I am, but maybe because we've been in church too long. But... You're condemned to die. And Christ provided pardon for you and me. It is great news at any level, much less the level of all of eternity. And he came to give guidance to us, to guide our feet into the path of peace. We're going to talk about peace in one of the sermons coming up, a song of peace. Don't you want your feet on a path of peace? Aren't you sick of your feet being on the path of chaos? The path of disorder, the path of... The path of peace is a place of faith, of trusting in God. To, to sing the song of Christmas that says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth, let me receive our King. God has visited his people. In his book, The Incarnation in the Gospels, Philip Ryken says this. He says, Salvation is not a human invention, but a divine visitation. I've always loved that line. I just love that line. It is not something we achieve by going to God, but something God has done by coming to us in Christ. We receive the message of the gospel, and God's 
does all of these things. Salvation, pardon, blessing, purpose come to us in Jesus Christ. Why did I title this a song of faith? When did John get his voice back? When he wrote the name on the paper. When he, in faith, writes, he's going to be called John. Now, has John done anything? Has his baby done anything to say he's going to be the one who prepares the way? It's, he's prophesied. Has he, he's done nothing. He can't speak. He's just, a, he's just barely been born. But in faith, Zechariah steps out and says he's going to be called John. Because the angel told me he's going to prepare the way. And then he sings this magnificent song, says it poetically before the Lord. That's how we come to Jesus, by the way. Before we ever do anything, we say, Jesus, we receive. You're never going to be right enough to come to Jesus. You're never going to say, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll come to Jesus, but let me get some things in order here. No, you come to Jesus by saying, I want his name written on my heart. I want the divine visitation. I want the, the word become flesh, make his home within me. One of the verses, lesser known verses, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, says this, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save and give them victory or the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Who's the shall come to thee, O Israel? It's us. It's not just the nation of Israel. It's not just the Jewish people. He came to rescue us and to set us free. I pray that this morning we would sing the song of faith like Zechariah did. And, and really, it's a covenantal relationship with God. And when we come to the table of the Lord, like we're going to in just a moment, we're saying, I, just as Zechariah received, I want to receive. I want to receive the the blood of Jesus that forgives my sins. I want to receive the body of Jesus which was broken so that we who were many can be one. We want to celebrate to remember this covenant of God. The worship team, I'm going to pray, the worship team is going to come and they're going to sing a song over us to prepare us to receive communion. And then we're going to come after they sing we worship for a second. You're going to come and receive the elements and go back and we're going to take them together to celebrate. Just as Zachariah celebrated the birth of his son John, but more importantly, the coming of Christ, so we celebrate as well. Lord, we thank you today and pray right now that you prepare our hearts and minds and lives to receive the truth that the Word was made flesh and made His dwelling among us. Let the Word become rich in our hearts. Let the joy of Jesus shine brightly within us. Let the blessing of God flow down into our lives today. Lord, I pray that right now we would be prepared to receive. Just as Zechariah wrote the name John in faith on that piece of paper, as we come to the table of the Lord, may we in faith say, I want to receive all that Jesus has for me. More importantly, I want to be an instrument of righteousness in his hands. 
so that Jesus will be exalted in my life and everything I do. In Jesus' name. Stand. Let's worship together.